Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, leading people into the Christ-centered life. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Take your Bibles and meet me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians 12. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1151 in that Bible. We are wrapping up a series this morning that we have called Roots. We have been exploring our Anabaptist identity, our Anabaptist roots. We are a Mennonite Brethren Church as part of a bigger family of churches called the Anabaptists, and we have been taking a look at what makes an Anabaptist an Anabaptist. What is the uh, distinctives? What are the emphasis? Every church and movement of the church does things a little differently. We're not saying we're right or wrong. We are just saying this is who we are and we honor those who are different than us who love Jesus, but this is who we are as Anabaptists. So we're going to wrap this up today with our final message. And just as we do, I want to show you a video clip before we get to our text. It's from the show The West Wing, which for my money is one of the greatest television shows of all time. And uh, in the scene we're about to see, there's a character named Toby. He's a pretty angry guy. And uh, they work in the West Wing. They work for the President of the United States. And there has been a leak. Someone has leaked something to a reporter and an embarrassing story is about to come out and so Toby the angry one is coming to confront the team about this leak uh, and will be a little bit of a setup for where we're going today let's take a look I miss that show it's a good, like, dad approach to the problem, right? I'm not angry, I'm just disappointed. It was one of those kind of moments. And I wanted that to kind of kick off today. We're going to look at our text in just a second. But as we look at uh, the last aspect of Anabaptism that we're going to emphasize, there's this idea that has always been there from the beginning of community. And every branch of the church understands community in one way or another. But the Anabaptists have always been about a community approach to everything. Uh, and so we call today's message Community Everything. Let's take a look at our text. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and we're starting in verse 12. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made, made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not, for that reason, stop being a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body." The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. So scripture is full of metaphors, uh, front to back, start to finish. Jesus loves to use them a lot. And Paul uses this one here to give us this picture of a body, a human body, that is a pretty good picture of what the 
church family is supposed to be like. And this idea that we're not all the same, we're all different, uh, and that is not a bad thing. And sometimes in the name of unity, there can be a temptation to say, let's all become the same. But when Paul is talking about unity in the church, he's saying, no, recognize your diversity. Recognize that we all come from a different place. We all have a different perspective. We all have a different background. Uh, We all have a different racial makeup. We all have a different gifting. We all have a different uh, worldview. We all have a different cultural effects on our lives. We're all different, but celebrate that diversity. Bring it together, though, under one purpose, which is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So we can all be different, and we can all bring something different to the table. And just like he says, the eyeball's different from the feet and the head and the hands. Like, you can't have a body that's made up of things that are all the same. You want a body that's made up of different working parts. But make sure that you come together, even as different as you are, united under one purpose, which is following and worshiping Jesus that we bring our diversity together. And in fact, the body parts in this passage lean on each other because the hand can't do what the foot does and the eye can't do what the ear does. And so the body parts actually need one another because we all bring something to the table, but we don't bring everything to the table. And so we need one another. And so the early church was so big on this picture of a community, of a a group of people coming together and helping each other out and leaning on each other and learning from each other and doing this together. And the Anabaptists have always really loved passages like that and said, we're going to use this body image, this body metaphor as the way that we approach everything. And we're going to have our leadership function as a community, not just one leader at the top. And we're going to discern God's word together, not just one teacher. We're going to actually wrestle through this together. We're going to live out the mission of God together. And we're going to do this as a community, as a family, as a team. Uh, And it's one of the things that drew me to Anabaptism so much, because a lot of the church doesn't function that way. So we're going to look at it today a little bit differently through the story uh, of a a weird passage in Anabaptist history. And as we've been talking through some of the history in the series, we've been noting that every church, no matter who you're a part of, whatever stream of Christianity you come from, we all have skeletons in our closets. And for Anabaptists, this is one of ours, and it's called the Munster Rebellion. Uh, And have fun looking it up later if you want, because it's just a fascinating incredible story and encourage you to to dig deeper. So Munster is a city in northern Germany Uh, in the 1500s. It was a walled-in city surrounded by moats, sort of a classic medieval city. It was prosperous. It was a trade center. There were lots of craftsmen in the city. And when the Reformation happens, this great religious uh, divide occurs in the early 1500s. The Catholics and the Protestants split off from each other and formed two separate churches. And then the Anabaptists split off from that. And so there's a lot of turmoil in Europe at the time. Catholics and Protestants are killing each other. Uh, Anabaptists are getting persecuted by both Catholics and Protestants. And there's just a whole lot of unease and tension going on. And cities start to align with one or the other. We're a Catholic city. Oh, yeah, well, we're a Protestant city. People start to choose. And where Munster starts off is it's a Catholic city that decides to go Protestant, But they don't persecute the Catholics who were there already. They let the Catholics worship in peace. And then when Anabaptism arises, they're okay with the Anabaptists being there. And so for a little while, it was just a little while, for this small window, uh, there are Catholics and Protestants and Anabaptists, and they're all living in the city, and they're all actually getting along. They're all, it's live and let live. We all love Jesus. We're going to do it different ways. That's okay. And for a little while, there's this moment of hope that, oh, maybe the chaos that has taken over Europe doesn't have to be. Maybe we can learn to live together. And then it's the Anabaptists, actually, who go crazy in this story. 
And the Anabaptists for so long were peacemakers and pacifists, and they were calming conflicts, and they were the ones getting persecuted. But in this story, this all flips around. And there's a few uh, very charismatic Anabaptist leaders who begin to rise up in their midst, and they begin to uh, claim they have had visions from God and revelations from heaven. Uh, they understand the scriptures in a new way. Uh, but they're very powerful speakers, and, and the people of the town are largely uneducated, and a lot of them don't read for themselves. And so so they put their trust in these leaders, and more and more Anabaptists begin to pour into the city. And eventually what happens is these Anabaptists, uh, who really are just Anabaptists in name only, they're not actually following any of the teachings that most Anabaptists did at the time, they began to have this understanding that said, uh, Jesus is taking a long time to come back. And we read in the book of Revelations that there's war on earth before he comes back. So why don't we trigger the war? that's going to release the return of Jesus. Let's just get that going for him, because he's taking a while. And so this peacemaking movement, which has always been about peacemaking, all of a sudden, just on a dime in this one city, becomes very, very violent. And they start uh, persecuting Catholics and persecuting Protestants and killing people. Eventually, they kick everyone who's not an Anabaptist out of the city. And they are going to claim this city. And from this city, they are going to launch the Great War that's going to bring Jesus back. And so the Protestants and Catholics leave. The Protestant leader of the city uh, goes and raises an army. And they come against Munster. But Munster is a Walden city with moats and cannons and everything. And so what ends up happening is there's a siege for about a year. Uh, the, the Protestant forces surround the city. The Anabaptists are inside. Uh, there's lots of attempts on the walls, and the Anabaptists beat them back, and the Anabaptists would uh, do these sort of undercover guerrilla operations where they'd sneak out at night and go into the tents and kill a bunch of guards and sneak back in. And the Anabaptists are greatly outnumbered, but they're safe in the city. And then within the city, cut off from the rest of the world, uh, things start to get really weird. And so when we started this series, one of you came up to me afterwards and said, I grew up in the, I think it was the Dutch Reformed tradition, and we were taught that the Anabaptists were like violent, crazy polygamists. Uh, and we're one of those here at this church? And well, well, we're not one of those. That's what these ones did. But this is the story that that comes from, if you ever taught that growing up. So as these leaders grew in influence and power, as they had uh, apparently this open line to heaven where God spoke to them clearly, they began to come up with new ideas and new uh, religious ideas. They said, oh, you know what? We see polygamy in the Old Testament. We're going to bring polygamy back. So ladies, uh, find a man because there's going to be a bunch of you for every man. And men are going to get to marry as many women as they want. And oh, well, we understand. Uh, understand that Jesus is the way of peace, but here's an Old Testament passage uh, that talks about violence. So we are justified in torturing people that we think are heretics. And so we're going to torture people now uh, who disagree with us on this scripture or that scripture. And so there are rumors of cannibalism happening in the city at this time over this year, rumors of orgies and all kinds of crazy things happening. Some of it may have been true, some of it not. But this group has gotten very far off the rails, it's safe to say of the classic Anabaptist path. And so we're going to look at this community theme today uh, through the lens of this picture. And what can happen, it's an extreme version, obviously, but what can happen when we lose our way in this area? So Anabaptists have always been big on community leadership. Uh, that it's not just about, you know, one person at the top dictating terms, 
Uh, it's about we lead as a group. We lead as a team. That has always been a part of it. And in the world in which these things were all happening, there is a Catholic church, there is a pope at the top, and underneath him there are cardinals and archbishops who are leaders over areas and bishops and priests all the way down. But it's very much that pyramid kind of top-down hierarchy, and that was the way the kingdoms of the world worked. You had a king leading a kingdom, and he had his court to help him out, but it's definitely all about the king. And in the Catholic church, they had the Pope, and when the Pope spoke, uh, his words were considered the word of God. When he spoke on faith or when he spoke on the church, his words were considered inerrant, uh, even like scripture would be. And so he's way at the top, and his will was done. And the Protestant movement, when it broke away from the Catholic Church, they said, all right, well, we are not going to do that. We don't see a Pope in Scripture anywhere. But they still very much kept kind of a top-down model uh, where you had teachers at the top. And the teachers were the ones who had all the answers. And so we needed to follow the teachers, and everyone else needed to listen to them. And in the midst of that, the Anabaptists just went a different direction. And the problem with this top-down model uh, is that you don't see it, actually, in the New Testament a whole lot. Jesus says this in Mark chapter 10. 42 to 45. His disciples are fighting over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who's going to be the top of that pyramid? Who's going to be the chief apostle? And as they are doing that, Jesus rebukes them and says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to ser be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so this is hard to argue with when even Jesus is saying, I'm not about being at the top with everybody waiting on me while I walk here on earth. And so, yeah, the world works that way with, with someone at the top of the pyramid imposing their will on everybody else. But Jesus says, not so with you. The kingdom is going to do this a different way. And a, a lot of churches and organizations, even in the world, are talking a lot more these days about flat leadership or flat organizations. So rather than one person at the top dictating, uh, there's a group of people coming together, and each has a voice, and each can weigh in. And within that, there is still typically one person. Uh, we still have a lead pastor here, which is a good thing. We have a, a board chairman here. We have growth group leaders. Like, you have one person there maybe who leads the discussion and who, who calls the meeting together and who guides things and who presses for a, a, a conclusion of things and decides when we're going to move on to other things. This is important because it can be chaotic without that. But the picture is, it's not one person in Imposing their will on everybody. And much of the church outside Anabaptism still functions that way. And I grew up in that, in the, the Pentecostal stream, where the lead pastor was the top of the pyramid. I actually was that top of the pyramid for a while. And I always hated it. It just never felt right to me. And it just, it's a lot of pressure on the person on the top. But, uh, but there's an understanding as well that, you know, I bring some wisdom to the table, but I don't have all the wisdom in the world. Right? I bring perspective from a certain way, but my perspective is not perfect by any means. It's incomplete. And I bring certain gifts, but I don't have all the gifts. And it ties back into what Paul's talking about in his passage. The body needs each other. The parts need each other. We can't do it. My left hand or my right hand can't do things without the other hand, right? If one of my legs isn't working, my other leg has to do a lot of extra work. Like, we need the parts working together. 
And Anabaptists from the beginning said, that's how we're going to approach ministry. We're going to do it together. We are going to lead together. And yes, we might have one person who's sort of the chairman or the point person, but their job is to lead the team of leaders. And so where I was the top-down lead pastor, because most other churches work that way, I can't tell you how refreshing it was to find Meadowbrook Church and go, a ministry management team, I've not seen this model before, where we still have a lead pastor, it was Greg at the time, but Greg's job was to lead the team and empower the team, and as a team, we're going to lead things, and then the board is there as a team, and the MMT and the board work together, and we figure things out together, and we make decisions together, and, and this is a really, really good thing, and I would argue a more biblical way for church to happen. It was so exciting to find that. What happens in Munster is that these leaders begin to rise above the team. Uh, there's a group originally, a group of elders who are running things, but then certain leaders begin to rise to the top. Bernard Nipperdaling becomes the mayor of the city. Jan Mathis becomes sort of the prophet. Uh, and Jan van Leiden, uh, who's 24 years old, he's not old, uh, but he becomes uh, Mathis's kind of assistant. And then when Jan Mathis dies, which we'll get to in a second, Jan van Leiden steps up and says, the Lord's told me I am now your prophet king. And this movement, which had been all about we do things as a group, as a community, uh, all of a sudden has a, a king lording it over them and telling them what to do. We've walked away entirely from the words that Jesus just said, where we're not supposed to do that in the kingdom. And he says things like, as prophet king, uh, I would like to marry more than one woman. And so he gets 16 wives, which is a bit excessive, I think. And he begins to, to issue decrees that anyone who disagrees with me personally will be executed. And when one of his wives disagrees with him, he executes her, tortures her, and executes her publicly. Uh, and he and his other wives do a little dance around her, rejoicing that the heretic has been purged from among them. So when you elevate one person, this is obviously a very extreme version, but, uh, but one person can't possibly have all the wisdom and all the perspective, and it's just so much better to approach it as a group. Uh, as a team. And as this happens with this elevation, uh, there's just nobody to check it. Once he's been anointed as prophet king, it's kind of hard to walk that back. And so as he issues his decrees, everybody has to follow them or else be executed. And the Anabaptists normally have always said, yeah, we're not going to put anyone in that position. We're going to do this together. Uh, and even as we honor those who are leaders, and the Bible, of course, still talks about leaders and elders and things like that, uh, and we still need that point person and that chairman, and we honor those people, their job is to lead the team and be a part of this team. And so it's a good thing, because if I stand up here on a Sunday morning, or Mesh stands up here and we say, I am your new prophet king, Meadowbrook, you've got a board and you've got Sherry and Xavier and others just to say, no, you're not. We do this as a group. Sit down and stop talking. We're not going to let you have the microphone anymore. And if you've grown up in this, maybe it's just so familiar to you, but having lived out the other way, having lived out the pyramid style of leadership, I go, this one is so refreshing. Uh, it's so much safer. There's so much safety in numbers as we do this together and as we lead a church together. To that end, connected to that, uh, there's community leadership. And also, Anabaptists have always put a lot of weight on community discernment. And by discernment, I mean, how do we understand God's word and how do we understand God's will? Uh, and so where the Protestants got away from the idea of a pope but still said, well, there's, now there's a teacher over you, and the teacher's job is to tell you what God's word means. Anabaptists said, well, we still, the Bible talks about teachers, but we're going to discern God's will as a community. We're going to read his word together. 
and we're going to wrestle it through together, and we're going to discuss it and pray into it together, and together as a group, we will determine what it means, and when it comes to God's will, we will do that together as well. Which direction do I go in my life? What decision do I need to make? What is the right path for me to take? It's not always easy to know that, but when we're trying to determine what that is, we're going to do that as a group as well. And so as much as it's good to read the Bible by ourselves, and as much as it's good to pray by ourselves, Anabaptists have always said you can't only do it by yourselves. You just can't. We all need help understanding God's word. We all need help understanding God's will. And so we will do it on our own, certainly, but we will also do it as we come together. And as a body, as brothers and sisters, we will learn together, and we will debate together and pray together, and we will do this together. I was praying with someone this week. A couple of us were praying with someone who just has a big decision to make in their life. And they were just saying, I'm just not sure which way to go. They're both good and pros and cons. And so we prayed for a bit, and we just prayed into some things. And when we said amen, uh, this person said to me, oh, like, just thanks for praying. Uh, you know, everything you said might have been kind of obvious, but I just needed to hear it. Sometimes I don't see these things in my own life. And I just thought, man, how often is that true for all of us, right? We don't always see the forest for the trees. And so we need someone outside to come and pray or encourage or speak into. And so there's a story in Acts chapter 15 it lays this out pretty well, uh, where there's a theological question that rises up in the early church. And they're not quite sure what to do with it. What does God's word say? What is the right way for us to handle this? And so what it doesn't say is that one teacher came in and said, I read the Bible, here's what it says, do this from now on. But what the Bible says is they came together as a body. They came together as a group. And the apostles came together, and the elders came together, and the people came together, and as a group... They debated and they discussed and someone brought this scripture and someone brought that scripture and they told stories and testimonies and they said that's what the scripture says but here's what happens in real life and they wrestled through it all together and at the end together they said we believe we have discerned together what God's word wants us to do, what God's will wants us to do. They figured it out as a community, and they did this as a group. In Munster, as these leaders begin to get elevated, the exact opposite happens. And so Jan Mathis is one of the leaders, and he is one of the first leaders, and he becomes known as the prophet. And apparently he was like 6'4", and he wore all black. He was just huge and, and towering, and he had a big, long, black, bushy beard, and he was really intimidating. And he might have been a bit unbalanced. He might have been a little bit crazy, but he spoke as if God was whispering in his ear all the time, and he was just constantly saying, God says this, God says that, God says this, God says that. And there's even accounts of him uh, when they would have a town meeting to say, here's the new rules, or here's what we're doing, or here's the plan uh, to break the siege, or whatever, where someone would ask him a question, and he would say, okay, good question, just hold on. Yes? Yes, Father? What? Okay. Uh-huh. Sure. Okay, God just told me. And the people grabbed a hold of that. And there were a few things he said that did come to pass, but then there was a lot more that didn't. And so uh, he would disappear for hours. He would fast and pray and come back with a new pronouncement. God told me that this is going to happen. Fire is going to come from heaven and destroy those troops outside the walls, and it wouldn't happen. Or God has told me that uh, he's going to just supernaturally, we're going to rise up and then angels are going to come and fight for us and we're going to destroy the enemy and then that wouldn't happen. And so he's in a tough boat as the prophet whose words are not coming to pass anymore. And more and more kind of radical proclamations would come. And so he said that God will deliver the city by this date. And the date came and went and nothing happened. And so he went away. He heard from God allegedly 
And then he came back and said, well, God told me he would have delivered us, but you people are all such filthy sinners that that's why he didn't. So go clean your lives up, and then maybe he'll deliver us. And the people went, okay, you're the prophet. And they went and, and tried to clean their lives up, and still nothing happened. And as they approached Easter, he said, the city will be delivered on Easter. Uh, and as they got closer to Easter, he even said, Jesus is coming back on Easter Sunday. Resurrection Sunday, Jesus will come, and then the whole thing will be over, and we will be united with him. And the, the morning that Easter comes, this is going to happen. And then the morning of Easter comes, and nothing happens. So he goes away and he prays and he comes back. He's like, the Lord told me. I, there's, he just forgot. He didn't tell me this part until just now. But I'm the new Gideon. And the story of Gideon in the Old Testament is the story of a, a man of God who with a very small force overwhelmed a much bigger force. And he says, the Lord's told me I'm the new Gideon. And so I'm going to take a group of 30 men and we're going to charge out on these 5,000 troops surrounding us and we will strike them down and then Jesus will return. And so he got on his horse, and his 30 men got on their horses, and they put on their armor, and they went out the gate, and they saw, the enemy saw them coming, and thought, well, that's, it's not an attack. There's only like 30 guys, so it must be a piece, a parlay. They're coming to talk to us. And then they started swinging their swords around, and the soldiers went, oh, I guess this is real. And they got up, and they cut them down in about 30 seconds. And now the prophet is dead. And the Anabaptists watched it all happen from the walls. They watched it unfold. And in the vacuum of his death, the other guy, Jan van Leiden, stands up and says, Before he died, Jan Mathis told me that his mantle was passing to me. I am now your prophet. And the Lord has told me I'm actually your new King David as well. And then everything escalated from there. And so, again, you have to have a bit of, you know, grace for the people of the time because they are, a lot of them are uneducated. They can't read the Bible by themselves, but you just would have hoped at somewhere along the way somebody might have said, this doesn't sound quite right. Someone who follows Jesus would say, yeah, are we sure that you're the new King David? Or, you know, before you risk the life of you and your 30 men, maybe we should pray about whether you're actually the new Gideon that you seem to think you are. And again, very extreme example. But when we discern as a community, it's so much safer. It's so much better for the church. Because again, all of us might have some wisdom or some insight, but none of us have all of it. And when the Anabaptists first started, they just met in people's houses when the whole movement was getting going. But they, they valued so strongly that we are going to read God's word together, and together we will figure out what it means. It's not just going to be one person imposing their will on you, but together we will figure it out. And, and again, the Bible tells us that we do have leaders and we do have teachers, but even leaders and teaching we want to happen in a group setting. And that's why we love growth groups so much at this church, is that we sit and we discuss an issue together and we wrestle it out together. Uh, and when we do things like, you know, discuss women in leadership like we did last year, we want to do that together. We're going to sit at tables together and we're going to read the scriptures together and we're going to debate and discuss, and I agree, and I disagree, and that's okay, because we can still love each other at the end of it, even in disagreement, as we wrestle through what does God want from us, and figure that out together. We have an email address that we use here at Meadowbrook. It's called questions at meadowbrook.ca. We put it up on the screen every week, and one of the reasons we do that is so that we can keep a conversation going, uh, because I'm under no illusions that everything I share with you is absolutely perfect. I am doing the best I can. Uh, I hope you know when I share something, it has been studied and prayed through, and, and it is sincerely presented as my best understanding of God's word and his will. Uh, but I don't have a complete understanding of who he is. Nobody does. 
And so we want to make sure the avenues are open where we can have discussions about, you know, I actually respectfully disagree with that point. Well, let's wrestle through the word together and let's figure it out together. Again, one of those things that I just, it so drew me uh, to Meadowbrook and to Anabaptism in general. Last one, community mission. There's always been an understanding that we do mission together. When we say mission, we're talking about Jesus has sent us on a mission. He has said, go and proclaim the gospel as Jesus seeks to save the world. And so we do that together. It's not just on a few. And this picture of the body of Christ that Paul gives us in our passage today uh, feeds into that, that the whole body is moving in the same direction and is doing the same tasks, and the whole body needs the other parts of the body in order to do that well. Verse 17 and 18 of our text today. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I'll read that last sentence again because I like it so much. But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. I love it. You are right where he wants you to be. He has given you a personality. He has given you giftings. He has given you wisdom. He has given you insight. And it's not exactly the same as the person sitting next to you. It might be profoundly different than the person sitting next to you, but God has put you here for a reason. You have something to bring to the table. And yet, because you don't have all the wisdom and you don't have all the insight, you bring what you have to the table. You also need to lean on what everybody else is bringing to the table. And they need what you have and you need what they have. I need what you've got and you need what I've got. The body is meant to work together. And so we bring whatever we have and we lean on each other. And, and of course, this goes beyond even just church, as we talk about even marriage and, and friendships and different things, that this is how relationships are meant to work in the kingdom, with back and forth, with sharing, with mutually growing together. And Anabaptists have always been really good at, we are going to serve together. There's this picture uh, that's sort of stereotypical, but we found it to be very true, of the sort of Mennonite work ethic of, we're going to go raise a barn. And it's not one person raising that barn, right? It's the community coming together. And when we first came to this church, uh, I remember saying to Sherry, who grew up Mennonite, I didn't, saying, oh, there really is something to this raise a barn work ethic thing. Like, that's a real thing. We're not literally raising barns anymore. But we just noticed at this church, when there was a need, there was a rallying together of people saying, let's go together and serve that need. And so this still happens in, in Mennonite and in Amish communities where the, the thinking is, okay, it's Saturday, Rob needs a barn built. Everybody, we're going to Rob's house on Saturday. And the community shows up. And they've been doing this a long time, so they know what they've been doing. They've been doing it for generations. Everybody has a job to do. The job is different from what other people are doing because you don't want everyone doing the exact same thing. But everybody has a role to play that day. And everybody is there, and there's lots of help, and everybody works, and they can actually raise the barn in a day. And so Rob is grateful. And then in a couple Saturdays, Chris needs a barn raised. And so now we're all going to go to Chris's house, and Rob's going to be there because Chris just helped him a couple of weeks before. We serve one another, and we help one another. And if everybody is chipping in, and if everybody is doing their part, it's less work, actually, for everybody. The burden is light for everyone, because everyone just says, I'm here to do my job, you're here to do your job, and as we bring all of those gifts together, we can do something amazing. And so it is with our bodies and so it is with the church, that when everybody brings whatever they've got to the table, 
whatever your gift is, whether it's serving or teaching or helping or music or tech or whatever, ushering, whatever you bring to the table, we need it here. And when everybody brings whatever they've got, it's a lighter load for everybody else. And in Munster, this doesn't happen. Again, as they elevate a certain amount of people and say, you are the prophets, you are the discerners, you are the ones to bring the mission, you are our prophet, you are our prophet king, then everyone else is no longer doing any of the mission. It's all on those ones. And those ones are getting it really wrong. And there's nobody there to to actually do the good things that Jesus has called them to do because they're too busy serving the ones at the top. And so when you put it in the hands of the few, that's never a good idea. The Anabaptists as a group have always been about, we do this together. We are on mission together. There was a verse, uh, a verse uh, quote from the video we saw earlier where Toby says, we're a team. We win together, we lose together, we celebrate and we mourn together, and defeats are softened and victories sweetened because we do them together. It's not a Christian show, but that's a very body of Christ-like line, that we do this together, and we encourage one another through the highs of life, through the lows of life, through the victories of life, through the suffering of life, we do this together. And as we do that, life is actually easier because we do that together. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. As we wrap up our series today uh, on what it is to be Anabaptist, just very quickly to recap, we have looked at Christ-centeredness, which has always marked the Anabaptists. We want to read our Bible through the lens of Jesus Christ. We want to live out our lives as Jesus did. We want everything to be driven by who Jesus is and how he lived his life and what he taught us. Uh, Anabaptists have always been about discipleship, and not just discipleship, they would use the word radical discipleship, that we are about following in the way of Jesus. We don't get to call ourselves a Christian just because we go to church or because we uh, even believe certain things on a list. We are Christians when we actually live out the ways of Jesus, that if anyone claims to be in Christ, John writes, that they must live as Jesus did. And so we are always seeking more and more to follow in the ways of Jesus. We talked about being in the world, but not of the world. That we love the world, we serve the world, we bless the world, we reach out to the world with Jesus, but we also are working hard to avoid uh, being corrupted by the sin, being polluted by the evil that we see in the world as we seek to be separate from the world in that sense. We took a couple of weeks to talk about peacemaking, pacifism. Thanks for hanging out through those weeks. Those were tough topics. Uh, The whole series has been very challenging, I found, as we've been going through this together. Uh, that Anabaptists have always said we want to uh, put away the sword, we want to peacefully end conflict, we want to peacify the world, as we kept saying. We wrapped it up today with the community approach to everything that has so marked the Anabaptist movement from the beginning. It did not go well for the Anabaptist Munsterites. Eventually the prince outside got enough people together, they charged into the city, they eventually took it over. It was not easy. Uh, The Anabaptists put up quite a fight, but the rebellion was crushed. Ultimately, uh, many people were killed. Uh, Lots were executed in the aftermath of that. Some of those key leaders who had led this rebellion uh, were tortured and put to death and hung in cages at the church door. And those cages are actually still there today. They have left those cages hanging from the church in Munster. Just as a reminder, and they left them there as a warning at the time for other rebels, but they've decided to leave them up just as a reminder of the extreme things, but what can happen uh, when we get away from the word, when we get away from uh, some of the principles of following after Jesus, when we pick up the sword, uh, these things still hang there. 
The whole episode in Munster was denounced roundly by every other Anabaptist group on earth. Everyone basically said, just because they call themselves Anabaptists, don't lump them in with us. Uh, because as though we looked at those previous week's messages, Anabaptists lived in a very certain way, uh, and these guys weren't doing that at all. And as we wrap up this series today, that is a wrap. I hope it's been helpful for you. I hope you've learned some things. And uh, I have certainly been challenged as I've gone through some of this stuff. And uh, I know it all hasn't been easy, but I think it's good for us to wrestle through this stuff and wrestle through the scripture and see where Jesus is leading us. We have an email address here, questions at meadowbrook.ca. If you have any questions on the series or on the message or on anything, uh, we're happy to keep chatting and keep that conversation going. We're going to worship for just a few more minutes, and then we're going to wrap up. Would you stand to your feet with me, please? Father, we thank you that we don't have to do any of this on our own. There is no pressure on us as an individual to master your word or to always know what's right or to how, on how to live out this Christian walk. Thank you that you have placed us in a family. Uh, Father, thank you for Meadowbrook and just thank you for how you have blessed this family. Thank you for the unity that is here and the health that is here and just how you have blessed us in many ways, Lord. I am grateful for this family and, and that I am a part of this family. And just as you have set each part of the body in place, just as you wanted us to be here, Lord, I pray you will help us to, to find our spot, to figure out how to serve and where we need to receive and what this means for us. But as we do that, Lord, we will give you thanks that we are not alone. Not only are you with us, but we are with each other as we live out this mission to follow after Jesus, to worship him, and to spread this gospel all over the world. We give you praise today in Jesus' name. Amen.